very good to uh, be giving a series of talks on Padmasambhava and uh, very good to look out and see uh, not just old friends but also new faces, people I've never uh, met before, never seen before here at Padmaloka. So uh, it's good to have a title for talks, so let's call this one The Wasteland and the Found Child. So as you all know, this retreat is devoted to Guru Padmasambhava, the lotus-born Guru. Padmasambhava means the lotus-born. Um, he is the great teacher, who was the great teacher, who was instrumental uh, to, in, in, to introducing Buddhism into Tibet in the 8th century. And our retreat is called Padmasambhava's Liberation. Um, and we've got a little bit of blurb in our program about that, although... Yeah, I can remember when Lokesh was asking me, well, what should we, you know, how should we describe this retreat? And I said something, but I don't think I'm going to follow that brief, so I hope nobody's disappointed. Anyway, so our retreat is called Padmasambhava's Liberation, and that's appropriate because his life story, of which there are many versions, is regarded as the story of liberation from samsara, from conditioned, habitual existence. That's how it's traditionally seen in Tibetan Buddhism. Although it has to be said that in describing this liberation, um, it does that in a rather, the life stories do this in a rather unusual way. I'll say more about that later. Now I've said that Padmasambhava lived in the 8th century and that has some truth. There certainly does seem to have been an Indian or Central Asian Buddhist master named Padmasambhava. Uh, there are texts attributed to him uh, from the 8th century and this person does seem to have had something to do with the introduction of Buddhism into Tibet. But actually very little is really known about this character Padmasambhava. If we were to take a very strict Western uh, scientific historical perspective, very little is actually known. There's very little hard fact. But sometime in Tibet, sometime in the 12th century actually, and for some centuries afterwards, we get an explosion of literature centering on Padmasambhava and a real explosion of creativity, if you like. Uh, in fact, we get an explosion of life stories of Padmasambhava. And some of them are very detailed indeed. And these life stories are part of a whole genre of Tibetan literature called terma. Uh, they're terma, which means something like treasure texts. Texts that had been hidden away. Hidden away, in fact, in the 8th century by Guru Padmasambhava himself for future generations to find and to live by. Uh, Padmasambhava could see into the future. This is what the tradition says, and see that all sorts of teachings and different versions of his life story were going to be needed by people in the future. So he hid away lots of teachings. It's a very complex and rich tradition, this Terma tradition. No time to go into all the ins and outs of it. And Terma is a vast literature. I mean, there's volumes and volumes and volumes of these treasure texts. 
Um, not only various life stories of Padmasambhava, and there are different versions of the life story. I mean, there's overall, there are, there are the same sort of themes, but they do in fact vary. But there's all kinds of texts, cycles of ritual and meditation, histories, prophecies, predictions, practice manuals, guides to hidden pilgrimage sites, and so on and so forth. It's a truly staggering, and I have to say, incredibly inspired literature, which is still being found. Uh, I think the last great Turton lived in the, in the last century, uh, and he lived in, in, in China. In, he stayed on in, in China and was at the centre of some controversy. Now, some of you might be familiar with one of these Turner. Uh, it's a very famous in the West, the Bardo Todol, the Great Liberation Through Hearing in the Intermediate State. We know this as the Tibetan Book of the Dead. This is a very, very famous treasure text. Now, the, text found, uh, the texts are found by Turtons, treasure revealers, and these Turtons are said to be emanations of one or another of Padmasambhava's 25 great disciples. This is, this is, these are the people who find the treasures. Now, the sophisticated will smile at all this. You can read very good academic studies of some of the great Turtons and the Terma literature, and they're sort of, you know, in a way, smiling away at these, these fabrications that are being passed off as uh, with the authority of Padmasambhava. But even with one of those, and one in particular, one particular writer, uh, a historian, um, points out how important this Turton who found all this treasure material was for uh, the development of uh, Bhutanese culture. Uh, the point is, this, the, the, the treasure texts and these Turtons that find these treasure texts are full of, of inspiration. The Turtons themselves, some of them, are really towering spiritual and cultural geniuses uh, who have enriched Tibetan spiritual life and culture. Whatever you might think of the origin of their text, that's actually the case. And the Padmasambhava of these Terma texts, these treasure texts, is a very different figure indeed. And it's quite clear that you're not dealing with any ordinary life story. You know, that he was born here on this particular date, and these were his parents, and he studied here, and so on and so forth. Well, he didn't have any parents, according to um, the, these treasure texts. He was born from a lotus. He sprung, fully born as an eight-year-old boy child, from a lotus, middle of a lake. He doesn't die. I mean, he lives for centuries and centuries through all the great developments of uh, historical Buddhism uh, in India uh, and on into Tibet, and he doesn't die. He rides off on a great winged horse into the depths of space to, to continue his work. And the longer lives of Padmasambhava, especially what's known as the Padmakaitan, which is, uh, we've got a translation of it called the, the Life and Liberation of Padmasambhava, and I think we've got copies of that in the bookshop if you want to have a look at that and there's certainly one in the library this is called the testament of Padma really what's going on in a text like this it's evoking a great myth and Guru Padmasambhava is at the centre of that myth or rather he is the myth and when I say myth I don't mean some harmless 
story, uh, some interesting, you know, anthropological um, you know, source of anthropological study. Myth here means a communication of the very essence of life, the deepest meanings of life, not through ideas and concepts and philosophy, but through symbol, image, story, and so on. And Buddhism has always employed this language of myth, symbol, image, and story. It's always used this. You always use these elements throughout its history from the very beginning. The Buddha himself not only presented his teaching using clear ideas and concepts, he also communicated <clears throat> using story, simile, metaphor, symbol, and even myth. And why is this? So what's the reason that Buddhism employs this language? Um, what, 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 why, why, why does Buddhism do this? Why does it need to continue to do this? Well, it's very simple. The fact is we need to involve our emotional depths in our Buddhist life and practice. The fact is we're desiderative beings. We are creatures of desire. We are motivated by, driven by our desires, our emotions. We can have the most wonderful ideas and all kinds of nice sentiments that go with those ideas. Ideas, for example, about loving everybody, about being kind and tolerant and so on. Ideas about meditating every day, about giving up bad habits and taking up good ones, especially you know, it's always this time of year we perhaps start to think, oh, I, must, I must give this up, I must give that up, I must take this good habit up, New Year's resolutions, etc. Uh, that's, that's quite a theme. But somehow, even with all our best intentions, we fail. You see this, somebody, right, I'm going to meditate every day, I'm, I'm, I know it's good for me. And they do it for a while and then they just, something takes over, they can't do it. I can see people smiling. There's some X factor, not in the Simon Cowell sense, there's some X factor, some block, some glitch that just seems to triss us up, trip us up, seems to undermine us. Somewhere, somehow, our emotions, our emotional depths are just not engaged. They don't want to know. You know, we see this in our relationships with people. We know it's it would be really good if we didn't react to that particular person in our family or in our work or who we live with, you know, that, that other person. We know it's good to just flood them with loving kindness and, you know, when they do those things, not to get irritated, but somehow we can't help ourselves. You know, we just, even if we don't do it to them verbally, mentally, we're telling them, well, we say, using very bad language to describe them, at least in our minds. Our Buddhism, our spiritual practice, our life can be just sort of skin deep. It's superficial. If we want to make any real progress, Buddhism, the Dharma, anything actually that, that we regard as meaningful, has to enter into our emotional depths, has to communicate with those depths, whatever they look like, however ugly they are, however wonderful they are, the Dharma, Buddhism, Spiritual life, whatever you want to call it, needs to communicate with those depths, needs to liberate those depths, make them conscious and transform those depths uh, so that they enrich our lives, 
This is what the language of myth, of symbols, of images, of stories is all about. It's about touching that deeper part of us. It's why Buddhism uses that language. Why, why Buddhist tradition always has images and paintings and so on. It, you know, there's a very, very rich tradition of this throughout the Buddhist world. It's not some sort of you know, falling away from some sort of pure, imageless uh, Buddhism. Buddhism's always used uh, images and so on. It's very interesting just to see how our shrine has been set up. We don't usually have it like this, but I think it was, you know, Jinnah Palito, it's very inspired the way he's got, he's got this. We've got the Buddha here at the centre. And by the way, just to say that all the paintings in here are by a British Buddhist artist, trained in the Western tradition, wrestling with, engaging with traditional Eastern Buddhist iconography. And this is another example perhaps of Buddhism engaging with our depths you know because we're not you know we're not uh, um, from the east necessarily you know it's engaging with our you know our, our contemporary concerns if you like so the Buddha image is at the center because enlightenment is at the very heart and center of Buddhism that painting is an attempt to evoke the stillness and the mystery and the inwardness, in a way, of the Buddha's enlightenment. It's trying to draw us into that experience, into that experience which is beyond all words, all concepts, all ideas, beyond all expression, which is transcendent. That's the aim of that painting, to draw us into the, the depths of the Buddha's wisdom, but also to give us some sense of the radiance of the Buddha's compassion. as also the great incredible sort of earthed quality of the Buddha if you, you have to get behind it to see it you know, how earthed the base of the image actually is now this image is at the centre because it's enlightenment that is at the centre of a Buddhist's life that's why it's at the centre of the shrine room all Buddhists aspire to the attainment of enlightenment all Buddhists are committed to the attainment of enlightenment they go for refuge to enlightenment although it's a very lofty it's the most lofty transcendent ideal we all have the potential to attain uh, that ideal that enlightenment we all have an affinity with it all human beings all life has an affinity with enlightenment the buddha himself his compassion his sort of initial as it were experience of enlightened compassion was of a great vision of life of all beings as being like lotuses, lotuses in bud, lotuses opening up to the light, growing up out of the muck of the pool. So in other words, it was a vision. His compassion is a vision of potential. His compassion is a, a trembling with, a vibrating with our potential. The Buddha's compassion isn't sort of just weeping over the, uh, the suffering and pain that we're in. It's not pity. It's actually something that goes out to see and to vibrate with that potential for wisdom and compassion that we all have and that we can all grow into. And the Buddha's activity is to awaken that. His activity of compassion is to awaken that and, uh, and teach how we can unfold um, towards enlightenment. And the Buddha's teaching is very, very clear. 
the Buddha laid out a very, very clear path. If you go to the great Buddhist texts, the, the, the Buddhist texts which are said to be the word of the Buddha, it's so clear. The human condition is laid out in such a clear way. The path is laid out in a very clear way. The practice of ethics, the practice of meditation, the practice of wisdom leading to liberation. Very, very clear, pointing to the very nature of things. Buddhism is famous for its clarity, its great powers of analysis, because it all comes from the Buddha. It's very, very clear. The Buddha is so strong on that. And it's vital that we are clear. It's really important to get hold of the doctrine, to be very, very clear about our actual condition, our actual situation. It's very important to be clear about what we need to do. It's very important to be clear about where we need to go and how to get there. So important. So we need to know our basic Buddhism, our Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path and so on. We need to really go into that, apply it and live it. But right in front of the Buddha, we've got this other image, sort of coming out almost of the Buddha. And it's this painting of Guru Padmasambhava. And we also have a, a bigger Padmasambhava here, and we also have a Rupa, an image of Padmasambhava here. And here we're seeing a very different character with his lotus cap and his long hair flowing down and his rich and gorgeous robes, and he's holding a Vajra thunderbolt in his right hand and a skull bowl in his left, filled with this red swirling nectar, and he's got his trident, and he's got this wrathful smile, this penetrating gaze, and there's movement and flow in the image, and there's lots of you know, dots and coloured lights, especially in that one. Very different image apparently and this is very significant that Padmasambhava is in front of the Buddha is sort of coming out of the Buddha because our own teacher and founder Sangharakshita who has himself a, a special connection with Padmasambhava has said, said on one occasion that, that what Padmasambhava really is is Buddhism itself even the Buddha himself in its aspect of transforming the depths transforming the unconscious depths. That's what Padmasambhava really is. It's Buddhism. It's the Buddha in its aspect of transforming the depths, the unconscious depths. And this transformation needs to take place within ourselves, uh, within our own consciousness. It also needs to take place in the world at large, in our society, in our culture, the transformation needs to be both individual and collective. And the life and liberation of Padmasambhava is about just this. It's about the transformation of the inner and the outer depths into the magnificent richness of enlightenment. When we actually look at the life and liberation of Padmasambhava, there's a, there's a lot of emphasis on the introduction of Buddhism into Tibet. But before we even get there, you get all these other chapters. And what, 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 what's going on is it starts in the sort of primordial past. And in the life and liberation, it evokes actually a great mythic struggle that's always going on between the forces of wisdom and compassion 
and the demonic forces of tyranny, anarchy, chaos and destruction. All of Padmasambhava's activities take place in this overarching context. And one very important point, Padmasambhava doesn't really destroy these forces, that's not the point. He transforms these forces, he transmutes these forces, he somehow turns all that energy into a positive and creative force so that these energies serve the truth, serve the Dharma and enrich our practice of the Dharma. When you read the life and liberation of Padmasambhava, you don't really get the, the impression of you know, just an individual personality, if you like, even an incredibly charismatic one. What you get the impression of, what's being evoked when this term Padmasambhava is, is, is um, when, when you read this life and liberation of Padmasambhava, is more like a sort of stream of consciousness, a sort of transpersonal stream of consciousness that's flowing along with the Buddhist tradition, flowing along with the Dharma. And it has a particular function, a particular activity. Its particular activity is to transform what's hostile to the Dharma, what's chaotic in life, what's destructive in life, and to transform so that um, the Dharma is enriched and grows brighter. So if you like, the forces of good grow stronger and stronger. It's extraordinary when you get into it. This is what's being described. And a very different approach you know, to life, I think, than simply, oh well, there's the bad that you destroy and the good that you develop. It's, far more, uh, it's, it's a far more positive vision. Moreover, the life and liberation of Padmasambhava includes the future. It starts in the dim, distant, primordial past, moves on into the present, and the present there is the introduction of Buddhism into Tibet, but then goes on into the future. Weird. Um, there's all sorts of predictions describing future events, for example. And at the end, Padmasambhava leaves Tibet to go to the land of the flesh-eating ogres, somewhere in the southwest. Some uh, Tibetan lamas believe that this is the geographical west where Buddhism has now uh, started to develop. And that is where apparently Padmasambhava is now. He's sitting at the top of a copper-coloured mountain in a wonderful three-tiered pagoda and he's sitting there gazing out at the chaos around him. You see images of this, the chaos of these flesh-eating ogres and all sorts of other things. But when you look at the tanka paintings of this Padmasambhava on the copper-coloured mountain, it was the first image of Padmasambhava I ever saw, you see this small figure with incredibly ecstatic eyes looking at this chaos and transforming it, turning it into something harmonious, turning it into a mandala, a harmonious arrangement, transforming all that energy into something creative, vital, uh, conducive to spiritual life and spiritual development. Perhaps, this is the point, perhaps now Padmasambhava is in the West 
and let's take that as it, more symbolically, if you like, as the extreme occident of matter. The modern world with its excessive, destructive, tyrannical materialism with all the other demons that go with that. That's where perhaps Padmasambhava is now operating. And, and I say that's a symbolic term, of the symbolic West, because that's spreading all over the world. That's where Padmasambhava is now operating, where he needs to operate. It's said in the traditions of Padmasambhava, he blazes more brightly in difficult times, in dangerous times. He feeds on difficulty, on danger. He glows and blazes with inspiration and creativity the more difficult and destructive things are. So we need to find him. We need to evoke him. We need to connect with that stream of energy ourselves. We need it. Uh, this is what this retreat is about. And actually, this is what the FWBO is about. Sangharakshita on one occasion said that he regards the FWBO as being part of this stream acti of activity. That's what it should be. I mean, it's not, it's not just an organisation that just of nice Buddhists that open centres and all the rest of it. It should be, if it really is living up to its vision, a stream of energy that we're all part of to transform these deep and powerful energies so that they, they serve the good. So let's begin to find... Guru Padmasambhava by looking at his birth and immediately we step out of history we go into story mode it's like something out of the Arabian Nights really um, well it's Christmas so let's enter a different world so sit back for a while and let me tell you a story I suppose I should start with once upon a time long ago and far away in the wonderful land of India in the beautiful land of Udhyana in the northwest, there lived a king named Indrabhuti. And he was a good Buddhist king. He was good to his subjects. He was devoted to his religion. But though good, Indrabhuti was afflicted. He was blind. Not only was he blind, he had no son, which made everybody very sad. No son, no heir, and he was blind. He would regularly worship the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. He was very kind to his subjects, but nothing would change his affliction. And things got even worse in the country of Udhyana. Not only was he blind, not only was he without a son and heir, the monsoon rains failed. There was drought, and then there was famine. And as if to make matters worse, there was pestilence filling the land. The people were dying. Although the king opened all the granaries, opened all the stores, there was not enough for the people, and the people suffered. And, all, and although the blind, sunless king was filled with compassion for his people, he didn't really know what to do to help them. So he consulted the wise men of his realm. And one of them spoke of an old tradition, of an island far across the sea, far across the ocean. An island of the most wonderful jewels, where in a secret cave, protected by 
the serpent deities, the Nagas, the wish-fulfilling gem was hidden away. The gem that would grant every and any wish. So the blind, sunless king, out of compassion for his people, went on the difficult and dangerous voyage to the island of jewels. Using the magic power of love and compassion, he passed through the serpent deities to the hidden cave. And there a beautiful maiden, half human and half serpent, gave him the wish-fulfilling jewel. He wished for sight and vision was returned to one of his eyes. Returning home, he raised the wish-fulfilling jewel on a great banner above his palace. He prayed for food and drink and riches for everyone in his land. And rains of food and drink and gems gently fell. The kingdom was healed and everyone was happy. And that night the king had a wonderful dream. He dreamt a great light like the sun was being handed to him. And the next day, one of the king's ministers came to him saying, Your Majesty, something very strange has happened in the northwest of the kingdom, in the beautiful lake of Dhanakosha. A vast red lotus blossom has appeared, and sitting within it is a miraculous child. What shall we do? So off went the king and his ministers, their carriages of state, to the northwest of the kingdom, to the Dhanakosha Lake. And then getting into a little boat, they rowed to the great red lotus. And sitting in this lotus was a beautiful eight-year-old boy child. His colour, the colour of the purple of seashells. He had little beads of perspiration on his forehead. And he was holding in his hand a golden vajra, and in his other hand a lotus. He looked serious and wise, and playful and kind, and seemed surrounded by light. King Indrabhuti was utterly amazed at this prodigy, this extraordinary child, and said, Emao, miraculous, admirable child. Who is your father? Who is your mother? What is your caste? Very important in India. And what country do you come from? What food do you live on? And why are you here? And the eight-year-old boy, with all the innocence of a child and all the wisdom of an old sage, replied, My father is the wisdom of spontaneous, immaculate awareness. My mother is the ever-excellent lady, the vast space of all things. I have no country or caste, having been born in the realm of reality. For food, I eat all duality. And I am here devoting myself to the destruction of all suffering. And of course... The king and the ministers were deeply, deeply moved at the sight and the wisdom of this wonderful child. The king began to weep, and as he wept, the sight in his other eye returned. 
and gently, gently, they gathered up the child, placed him in the boat, rowed to the shore to take him back to the kingdom. There's a beautiful detail in one of the life stories of all the water birds in the lake trying to stop them, trying to stop them taking the beautiful child. And uh, they're all weeping and very upset because they rather like him being there. But the boy was taken back to the palace and he was enthroned as the king's son and heir and given the name Lake Born Vadra, Tsokki Burji, or Padmasambhava, the lotus born. The king and all the people of Uriana rejoiced. The country was fertile. The people were nourished. The king could see. And now he had a son and heir. Wonderful. So this is the account of, of Padmasambhava's birth. And, uh, you know, it'd be wonderful to kind of work all this up into some you know, wonderful play or something like that. And I'm tempted to just leave you with that. And we'll all go and have lunch. Uh, let the story work on you, touch you or not. Might not touch you. But, as David Hockney once said, everybody loves explanations. Uh, so I want to just suggest some ways of reading this. It is, after all, from a traditional Buddhist text, and such stories are intended to suggest deep meanings and associations. It won't be a definitive reading. It just really is what occurs to me when I read this story, when I reflect on this story. First of all, there is King Indra Bhuti. He's a devout, a good Buddhist king. He is a good man, but he's blind and without a son. And his land is infertile, is infertile and his people are suffering. He's blind and possibly impotent, and that's reflected in the land, which is infertile. And whenever I read this story, whenever I reflect on this story, it reminds me of one of the stories from the Grail Cycle, the, the story of the Fisher King. One of the, the knights of the Round Table go, go to a land which is a wasteland, ruled by the Fisher King, the Wounded King, who was one of the holders of the Grail. But he has this terrible injury. Some of the stories say he's injured in the groin. Others say the legs. Uh, but it's known as the dolorous blow. He's impotent and powerless. And his land is infertile because of that. His country has become a wasteland. And all he can do is distract himself through fishing. That's the only relief from this death in life that he's feeling. So the wasteland, you know, the wasteland, let's stay with that. Sometimes we feel ourselves to be in a wasteland. A wasteland is a wasteland that we feel it's inside us, a kind of wasteland of the heart. And when we look outside ourselves as well, all we can see sometimes is a wasteland. It, the world seems so empty. It seems so utterly, utterly meaningless. I say see, but we don't really see because we're, we're like Indra Bhuti. We're blind in the sense of not seeing the way forward, not really seeing. We might well be good people. We are good people. We want to do the right thing. 
but we cannot see the most meaningful way to live. And our wasteland here, uh, right now, the wasteland for us, it's not a place where there is no food and no wealth. Where we live, there is plenty. We have an embarrassment of riches, actually. But how do we live? What to do in this world with all its many and various problems and possibilities? And with that, and what goes with that, there's that ever-present sense of mortality, that ever-present sense of, of death, especially as we grow older. What to do, how to live. And there's all these different voices telling us about war and global warming and worldwide suffering in places that we can never hope to help. And all, there's all the different solutions on offer, all the demands, all the different religions, traditions, techniques. No wonder we feel sometimes so impotent, so apathetic, so frozen, so anxious, so depressed. And we're told that you know, depression is really on the increase uh, for us. You know, it's, no, it's no surprising because people are just overwhelmed by information about terrible things. No wonder we feel frozen and depressed. And, and, and that wasteland, of course, the wasteland of the heart, the wasteland of the, of the world, is evoked so well in that great poem of T.S. Eliot, written all those years ago, written back in the 30s, you know, after a catastrophic war and the economic failure that followed. You know, The Wasteland's a very interesting poem, actually, and, and, and still very, um, so very, you know, still relevant now. It's all these references to tarot cards and astrologers and ancient Christian myth and Eastern religion and frustrated relationships and opulence and all the rest of it. And it's tender evocation of the empty heart and the wasteland around. Unreal city under the brown fog of a winter dawn. A crowd flowed over London Bridge so many. I had not thought death had undone so many. Sighs, short and infrequent, were exhaled. And each man fixed his eyes before his feet. My nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad. Stay with me. Speak to me. Why do you never speak? Speak. What are you thinking of? What thinking? What? I never know what you are thinking. Think. I think we are in Rat's Alley, where the dead men lost their bones. Well, we can feel like that sometimes. But in our story, although blind and without a son, Indra Bhuti acts. There is a sort of paralysis in T.S. Eliot's great poem. But in our story, Indra Bhuti acts. Indra Bhuti has a basic goodness and a strong sense of responsibility for his people. He doesn't give in to despair and depression. He acts. He consults wise men. He finds and consults 
wise men. And then he goes on the difficult, dangerous voyage to find the wish-fulfilling gem. It sounds improbable, wonderfully improbable, but sometimes we have to do this. We have to act on what sounds impro improbable and go on, the, go on the long voyage, yes, to find the wish-fulfilling gem. The gem that will solve all his problems and the problems of his world. We have to do that. If we're to cure the wasteland of the heart, and, to, and if we're going to cure the world as well, we have to act. We have to do something. We have to take individual responsibility to find the solution. We have to renounce all passivity, all helplessness, all blame, especially that it's somehow somebody else's fault and problem. We have to go and find the wish-fulfilling gem. In Buddhist tradition, the wish-fulfilling gem is a very important symbol. It's a very ancient Indian symbol, actually. It, it, it's a traditional Indian symbol that, that, that is not just Buddhist. Uh, this tradition of a fantastic gem that fulfills all wishes, all desires, solves all problems. So this very powerful Indian tradition and legend is taken up by Buddhism and especially by the tradition known as the Mahayana, the Great Way. In that tradition, the real wish-fulfilling gem is said to be the bodhicitta. Bodhi means enlightenment, wisdom and compassion, perfectly conjoined. Chitta means heart, it means mind. So bodhicitta is the heart-mind of wisdom and compassion, enlightened wisdom and compassion. But here... It has the meaning more as a sort of force, an urge, a volition that we need to activate within us, a movement towards wisdom and compassion. The wishful willing gem, the solution to all problems, is the mind and heart intent upon wisdom and compassion. When you have that intention, that motivation, that energy, you see that it's wisdom. Clear seeing, conjoined with compassion, compassion and love for everyone that is the solution to all problems. If everyone had something of this, something of this bodhicitta, if everyone was touched by this just a little, the world would be a very, very different place. We would be very different people. And when the bodhicitta arises in someone or in a community, that person, that community, lives only to follow the path to enlightenment and only to bring that path to others. All activity becomes fully meaningful. And such a mind, such a heart, this bodhicitta, will involve going on a great journey. Uh, it, will be, it will be like going on a voyage through unfamiliar seas, as in our story. Sometimes the Dharma, the Buddha's teaching, is likened to the great and mighty ocean. It's vast, it's deep, it's mysterious. And it's in that ocean, in those seas, that we'll find the deepest meaning, the wish-fulfilling gem, the bodhicitta. But only if we go on the great voyage, the, peri the perilous voyage. We have to be bold and fearless 
like the king who cannot see. Well, we're like that. We can't always see where we're going. We have direction. We have an intuition. But we're not quite sure where we're going. It seems right. And we have a guide and we have spiritual friends, a captain and a crew, if you like, voyaging through the Dharma. We're acting, living, doing something, responding. At least we can do that. And in our story, Indrabhuti finds the wish-fulfilling jewel and saves himself and his country. But after this, he's given so much more. He finds something even more extraordinary, the miraculous boy born from a lotus, Padmasambhava. And Buddhist life can be like this. We work, and we work at our spiritual practice. We practice our ethics, our meditation. We're generous, we're kind, we study the Buddhist scriptures, we go on retreat, and so on and so forth. And we start to have some success. But what can arise, what does arise, is so much more than we ever expected, than we ever dreamt was possible. Something utterly other strange and marvellous, even stranger and even more marvellous than the wish-fulfilling gem. The bodhicitta is actually more extraordinary than a wish-fulfilling gem. It's more like an eight-year-old boy-child voicing ancient wisdom. So what arises as we seriously practice Buddhism, what will arise, what can arise, is a completely new being we will in fact be reborn. We will be reborn as a new being who sees the world in an entirely new way, fresh, sparkling, radiant. That being is us. Or it's a vision of what we could be, what we could become, born from a lotus. And no longer defined by all our conditioning, but now defined, if you like, by bodhicitta, by wisdom and compassion. And how does such a new being live? Remember those strange words that the boy, Padmasambhava, spoke about his father, his mother, his country, uh, and so on. But what struck me especially this time when I was looking at the story was the way he describes what he feeds on when he's asked, well, what food do you live on? What nourishes you? And the boy says his food, his nourishment, comes from eating, comes from consuming duality. It comes from consuming all dualistic ideas. That's his food. That's his nourishment. We need to feast on removing the distinction between ourselves and the Buddha by following the path. We need to feast on the distinction between our ordinary mind and the mind of wisdom and compassion, the bodhicitta. We need to feast on removing the distinction between ourselves and others through intensive meditation on loving kindness. This is what you're doing in the metta bhavna. The metta bhavna is a feasting practice, actually, when you do that practice, when you get into it, because you're feasting on removing the distinction and the divisions between yourselves and others. You need to approach it like that, especially in that fourth, that juicy fourth stage when you 
have all that ill will, all that division. We'll feast on it, delight in it, delight in eating it up. This is our food. This is our drink. This is our wine, actually. Because when you, pers when you consume all these barriers, all fear, all tension vanishes. And there is bliss. There is play. There's energy. I mean, so much energy is bound up in dividing ourselves off from other people. So there's bliss, there's play in abundance. There's endless creativity. So it's not just about feeding, it's also consuming the wine, if you like, of duality. So this is Padmasambhava, the child. And this is what we can be also. This is how we can live if we really plunge into Buddhist practice. And it's this that will remove the suffering around us as well. This will spread happiness and meaning all around. If you remove hatred and all those di divisions, you'll be releasing love and well-being for others. Now, it all sounds wonderful, this, but be careful. A found child is wonderful, but a found child can also be very dangerous. Because a found child is not of this world at all. In the story, a bit later on, Indra Bhuti, out of love for his son, tries to give him the wish-fulfilling jewel. Padmasambhava, the child Padmasambhava, refuses it, saying, I don't need it. And then he spits into Indra Bhuti's hand, and the spit turns into another wish-fulfilling gem. What a child. <laughs> A strange child indeed, perhaps even a bit dangerous, a bit dodgy. You don't quite know what's going to happen. So in the same way, when vision arises in us, when the vision of what we can be really takes hold, anything can happen. Life actually will never be the same when you get a real vision of possibility. Life will not be the same. Sure, we see what's possible and it's exciting. And we're attracted. We can see what we can grow into and gain. But in order to experience that, we know that all will be changed. Utterly changed. And we can feel the ground begin to move. On Friday, we'll start looking at the changes that manifest when the vision takes hold. <laughs>